Welcome to Inside Ulster, the rugby podcast from the Bell Tell, with me, Neve Campbell, me, Jonathan Bradley, and me, Adam McKendrick. With expert analysis and special guests, let's kick off. Hello and welcome to another episode of Inside Ulster. It feels a bit like deja vu as Ulster lost their third match in a row at the weekend, essentially in the dying breaths of the game again. La Rochelle head coach and former Munster and Ireland star Ronan O'Gara had quite a bit to say about that. And in other rugby news, whilst Dan McFarlane seems to be a bit under pressure, he has potentially been linked with the newly vacant Leicester Tigers job. Jared Payne, former Ulster player turned defence coach, has taken up an interim coaching role with Claremont. And Dave Ewers will be joining Ulster from Exeter at the end of the season. Finally, we'll be touching on the Ulster women's game this week at home against Leinster. And joining me as always is the Belfast Telegraph's rugby correspondent, Jonathan Bradley, and Belfast Telegraph sports reporter, Adam McKendry. So kicking off with the La Rochelle match, lads, last week in the podcast, we'd said sort of that we wouldn't be surprised if Ulster got a bit of a hammer at the weekend. But to be fair, would you say the result, Jonathan, despite being a loss, warrants some praise? Yeah, I think it does. They looked an awful lot more like themselves. So maybe not the result warrants praise, but the fact that the performance was more like them. It's more what we've come to expect and it had an awful lot of elements in it that um, are what we've been saying need to improve. Like, yes, I suppose the conditions were a bit of a leveller. Like, this always sounds like a real cliche, but like you really had to be there to appreciate how bad it was. Like, I don't think it, uh, I don't think TV did justice to just how bad the weather was. I know I really regretted not going to La Rochelle, but watching that game on Saturday really made me think I made the right decision. <laughs> well, I mean, like it was good on, uh, the weather was good on Friday and then it had mostly cleared up by Sunday. So it was just the day that you were actually mostly in the stadium. So it's just like Belfast, all four seasons in the space of three days. Yeah, yeah no Uber in La Rochelle, that's what I learned. So uh, <laughs> we did get soaked at least twice, but uh, anyway. Um Yes, yeah, so, I mean, the conditions were, I suppose, a bit of a leveller, maybe, and La Rochelle had a good number of guys missing, having had that sort of uh, big win over Toulouse that we talked about um, the week before. But I think there's been an awful lot of talk about, you know, attitude and defence and confidence. And I think Ulster showed a good deal of fight. I think they showed the right attitude. And I think while they were obviously distraught by the result and yeah. heartbroken by how it finished and you could tell afterwards, like I think they that is a performance that they can actually build on, which is something that we haven't said since the end of October, really. Mm-hmm. I know, because like, I saw like Jacob Stockdale and Mike Larry and the only word that any of the photographers were using to describe them were just dejected um, by the end and I know I think, I think Roland O'Gara actually touched on the weather as well um, and Dan McFarlane said you know he said that while La Rochelle won he felt that Ulster hadn't lost um, Adam what do you think like were there any standout moments for you or again was it surprising that they threw it away essentially whenever you're on a run like this and I I think Nick Timoney made a good point after the game, which is that you're not really looking for the moral victories at this stage. You're looking for the victories. And 
as much as there are things that Ulster can look at and think, yes, we did well, we also thought that after the Connacht game, which they did actually win, and they could use that as a springboard, and they haven't since. So I, I don't want to be too hasty and say this is a this is a chance for them to sort of use it as a springboard and kick on. I don't think there was enough from that game to necessarily say that this is the opportunity for them to sort of move on and try and go go up a level purely because I don't think we got a true reflection of either team on Saturday in those conditions. You know, La Rochelle generally are not that team, you know, making so many mistakes, uh, being unable to score until the 81st minute or did, did it take over to the 81st minute? But, you know, I, I don't think we got a true reflection of La Rochelle. I don't think we got a true reflection of, of Ulster either. I, I think they could have played better if the conditions were better. Uh, so I think they're... Basically, I, I think just the weather completely ruined that game. What I I quite enjoyed it. It was bracing. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was engrossing. Like everything mattered throughout the duration of the game. Like I watched the Leinster game. Um, like when I watched it just before heading to the stadium, and I was like, "Oh, this is so boring." Like there was much better rugby like much higher quality attacking rugby, but I was like, oh, this is just so dull. And like, it's not Leinster's fault, but they're so much better than the teams that they're playing. And they're running what looks like training ground moves. Whereas during that game, I was like, yeah, like every single second of this matters. Like I know there was, I think it was like 30 minutes of, uh, or just over 30 minutes of ball and play time. So there was an awful lot of uh, those minutes that I'm talking about that mattered Uh, where actually nothing was happening. But like, I mean, like I, I understand where you're coming from, but equally the quality wasn't really there. And again, I, I put that down to the weather. You know, Ulster had 71% possession, I think, in the first half an hour. I, I think it was whenever the, the stat came up. And it was still nil-nil. Like, I think that's a true reflection on where the quality of this game was. And as I say, you know, you see someone who is usually as solid under the high ball as Brice Doolan just being unable to track the ball, let alone catch it. I think a better fist of it than Teddy Tomah did. Well, that's true. Teddy Tomah looked like a, a man all at sea, uh, the, which, the, which the, was almost literal given the weather conditions. But, um, you know, I, do, do I think Ulster can sort of kick on from this? There is a potential. You know, they did play better. Defensively, they were very strong. Uh, they didn't really have to be because La Rochelle were making so many, many mistakes. But defensively, they were much improved from previous weeks we saw the mall got back to somewhere close to what it usually is and I, I think Dan McFarlane has a point that they maybe should have had a penalty try in the first half but I don't think there's any maybe about it like well, I think <laughs> the second one is a penalty try and again to go back to that um, Leinster game and even to go back to the Teresa game with Ulster the week before I think it's the lack of consistency in that regard, that'll be a massive frustration for Ulster because, like, we saw penalty tries given and have seen penalty tries given for a lot less um, in recent weeks and indeed this weekend in the same competition. Well, equally to play devil's advocate, I think if Ulster get a penalty try in the first half, then La Rochelle probably have a very strong shout for a penalty try in the second half as well for all those scrum penalties. I think they can maybe argue that there should have been a yellow, yeah. Well, yeah, definitely. Uh, I think maybe a, a penalty try as well. But look, at the end of the day, it's another game that Ulster have thrown away from a very winnable position. Like you, you can look at it, coming into the game. We talked about you know what would be a good result for Ulster, and I think in the yeah. context coming we said into the that, game, we were like, 
if they ship less than 50 points. Yeah. <laughs> like they but, only, you know, they only get beat by four. Yeah, but, the, but the context shifts during that game where you're 3-0 up and the ball's halfway just inside your own half with 30 seconds to go and you give away a penalty and the other team go and score. Like, as much as if you looked at that result with zero context and you saw Ulster lost 7-3 on the road to the defending European champions, you would say, you know what, that's a good result. I think this is another one that you put in the bank of very damaging psychological defeats. If you come away from that game having lost 3-0, or sorry, having beaten the defending European champions, even in the conditions like that, keeping them off the scoreboard, I think that's huge psychologically. For them to lose it the way they did, I think is a massive psychological blow. I think it's a psychological boost. Like, I don't know how you can mm. put that in the same world as some other games that we've seen recently. Like, I think they should come away from that feeling better than they felt coming away from the two games that they've won in this block. Like, you, you don't think standing under those posts at the full-time whistle, having held them out for 79 minutes, and then is to, it, con- to concede to, to concede in the way they did a dent to confidence. I don't think it's a dent to confidence. Like it's de- it's devastating for them, but I don't think it's a dent to confidence. I think they'll feel a million miles better about themselves this week than they felt last week. Do you think Ronan O'Gara said, um, quote unquote, here? There's no continuity. There's no semblance of what we saw tonight and what we saw against Seal. Um, and he also said that something in the environment. There's something in the environment at Ulster that has to get better. Do you, is, is, that, like, is that, is that patronising? Like, if you were the Ulster lads, would you think? Yeah, I mean, to be fair, like, it was quite a long and detailed answer, I think. Um, he maybe spoke for, I don't know, about 90 seconds in response to, to the question about Ulster. But obviously that is the bit that even when he was saying, I was like, why are you saying that? <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to be that honest like nobody else is. Where's um, the media training here? <laughs> yeah, but he's like, see, to be fair, like one, he didn't have to come and speak to us at all because it was a different La Rochette. One of his assistants did the actual official media uh-huh. and he came down to speak to us after he'd already left whenever he realised that there were Irish media there looking to speak to him. So he came down, like his kids were running around, they were trying to leave a few times they were like, like, no, you have to get away here. He's like, no, 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 go as long as you need. So it was like, it was myself and Murray from the from the 42 we're talking to him. And like, throughout, we were like, conscious of the fact that he had already left. I was like, so, you know, if you'll excuse the question about Ulster, and he's like, no, 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 that's fine, that's fine. And then gives the answer and you're like, why are, like, why are you saying this? Why, why are you answering this question honestly? Nobody ever answers these questions honestly. Just say something Generic. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas... Gave, gave us a good fight today. Really <laughs> impressed. You were buzzing, Johnny. You're like, this is my <laughs> like, piece in the paper. Exactly. Yeah, like, this is my back page line right here. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but I think what he's saying about Ulster is abundantly true. Like yeah. anybody looking at Ulster, even people within Ulster looking at Ulster, should be thinking, we can't have these peaks and troughs where we look like we can beat anyone because, you know, that's all we've heard the last couple of weeks. We can beat anyone on our day. Mm-hmm. And the fact of the matter is... We the, haven't. <laughs> yeah. But the really, really good teams don't have to say that because yeah. they don't have to have this qualifier on our day because they have their day. 
They don't need to prove a point, yeah. essentially. Yeah. Yeah. And when it's not Ulster's Day, as we've seen most specifically at sale, but we've seen it at other times, they can go off the rails more often than a good team should. Like I understand the um I understand the caveats around that sale performance. Like I was in the airport too. Maybe I wasn't at my best. You know, it was a difficult day for everyone. But um, I think that there's more examples that you can give of Ulster falling below a standard of what you would say the top teams fall to on a bad day. And that's what O'Gara said. You know, on a bad day, you need to be six out of ten. And we've seen throughout this run where on a bad day, Ulster can be, well, for me, Sale was a one out of ten. Yeah, and maybe not even a one out of ten because they didn't really do anything in that game that yeah. was good. But you know, we've seen them be four or five out of ten, given what we know that their ten is. So yeah, every, like I think every everything that he was saying was honest. I think anyone that takes exception to what he is saying mm-hmm. isn't taking a fair and balanced view of what they've seen from Ulster. Mm-hmm. But I do think it's incredibly interesting that he says it regarding this yeah, because it's just him. like... And I think to add on his point slightly, I think what Ulster also do different to some of the top teams is whenever they slip below that 6 out of 10 is they let that run go on for a little bit as well. It's not just you're, six, you're maybe 4 or 5 out of 10 for one week where other teams would be 6 out of 10. Ulster will be 4 out of 5 for one week and then they'll like bounce back to 6 out of 10. But... You know, you, you need to be bouncing back higher than that after you've had a four or five out of ten week. So that's also down to the continuity as well. You need to find a way to bounce back quicker, and especially during this run that Ulster are on, they have proven that they haven't been able to do that. So that's, you know, how often have you seen, and again, you know, Leinster, Saracens, Racing, you know, the big teams, Toulouse, how often have you seen them drop even to six out of ten for multiple weeks? It's extremely rare. Usually, once you drop down to 6 out of 10, the next week you bounce back to 8 or 9 out of 10. Ulster are just mired in this run of 6, 4, 5, 6, 4. You know, they just can't quite find that one performance that'll snap them out of it. And, you know, I I still think they're waiting for it. Some people might think that Saturday was that performance that'll that'll bounce them back, but I think they're still waiting for that one performance that'll just spark them back into it. I just wonder if we're not going to see it as and this is something that I think also have spoken about themselves. I don't think it's going to be like one game. And like Munster, I think is a good example of this, right? Because Munster were terrible at the start of the season. And I know some people have pointed to like the game that they played against South Africa A as like the point where it all turned around. But I think it's been more gradual than that. And you can see Munster are now playing the conference. And I think if Ulster build on what they put out against La Rochelle and I think they can build on that where I don't think there's been anything to build on really in the past games but if they build on La Rochelle beat Sale things go their way out in Cape Town and you end the block by beating the Stormers when you could be playing their reserve team like you don't have to get back to your very best to do any of those things but I think it just gradually week by week by week by week by week improves the confidence that we've seen has been sorely lacking and that's why I think there was something important in that La Rochelle game because I think it is something regardless of the context of the conditions whenever people were like us were expecting them to get absolutely hooked <laughs> and uh, 
they should have won the game. I think they can take confidence from that and build on it in a way that it's like a slow, gradual, compound interest sort of thing rather than, you know, they go out and suddenly just put somebody to the sword and everybody's like, they're back, you know. Dan was asked about this after the game, you know, it was like, is this, you know, is this a comeback? And he sort of said something similar, like it's going to be, the comeback is going to be when we start consistently looking more like ourselves and that's not something that you can do in one week because it goes back to exactly what we're saying it's consistency well i think one of the good things that you at least saw on saturday was there was that desire to fight you yeah. know for for <laughs> quite literally in the case well, of ian madigan <laughs> well yes he, <laughs> i don't think i've ever seen an example of the smallest player in the pitch trying to take on the tallest player in the pitch before but fair play to him for stepping up and, and trying to do that <laughs> but something that people have questioned over the last few weeks is do Ulster have the fight in this team to More so actually... than a few weeks like well, Ulster, yeah. Ulster being too nice is something that uh, has been yeah. used as sort of like an insult for a long time but but you saw you know once they won that scrum penalty on their own five metre line after giving up was it three penalties in a row four possibly you know the, the desire for them to get back up and, you know, Stuart Murr's in there celebrating and Jeff Tamang-Allen stands up and he, he's, you know, he's put in a Herculean effort and, you know, th- and sorry, a, a word on Tamang-Allen before, just before I finish my point, but like that guy's gone 150 minutes in two weeks against Benetton and La Rochelle. Like that's, that's a mad effort. That's outstanding, um, especially whenever Ulster needed a tight head to stand up. You know, like with Tom O'Toole and Marty Murray out long term, we on this podcast questioned what Ulster's tight head prospects were. But, you know, he's really stood up and, and really filled in that hole well. So if that's what they're getting from him for the rest of the season, then I don't think too many people will be complaining. But just to get back to the point, you know, like the, the fight, the desire, I think, I think just seeing that will have people a lot more confident that Ulster can turn this around. I think as as long as, you know, you got those performances, like, especially in Benetton, where you just sort of felt like there there didn't really seem to be that oomph, there didn't seem to be that real passion there. I think just seeing that in La Rochelle will have a lot of people thinking to themselves, this team can turn it around. Going up against Seal this weekend, um, they're hosting Seal they need victory and they also need results elsewhere to go their way if they're to have any hope of advancing to the knockout stages. What, like touching on that, the fact that like Adam, you feel like their fight's back and um, I know you think they've maybe been psychologically damaged by La Rochelle and Johnny, you think maybe they'll take a boost from it, but what needs to change do you think going up against Seal? From the last Seal game? Yeah. The one out of ten, if even. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they'll start the day in the right country, so that's a good start. (laughs) And the weather might be just as cold by the, by the looks of things. Are the covers on the pitch? <laughs> yeah, get the covers on the pitch. That's, that's a good start. Um, as it starts to snow outside Bell to El Tarso. Um It's all about physicality in as a starting block because Seal are a team that maybe you would look at Ulster and say Ulster don't match up particularly well with them because they're so abrasive. And I think it's finding ways... To counteract that, it's meeting that physical challenge, which sounds very basic, but meeting that physical challenge head on. I think we saw, even against La Rochelle, we saw a big Ulster pack. You know, you saw Harry Sheridan um, come on. He's another physically big man. That was like, that was a surprise call. Like, but he. Can, Can we talk about that call? You know, like, 
I, I understand that we thought there would be some changes for La Rochelle, just naturally, you know, you don't think you're going to get something out of this game. Let's send over a change team and have everybody in reserve ready to go for sale. They actually ended up picking a stronger team than I thought they were going to send over. You know, minus one or two guys, it was more or less the full strength side. But, but like he, Bar McCluskey, essentially, yeah. I think every call that was made was made with selection in mind. Yeah. But then to throw Harry Sheridan on the bench whenever you've got Sam Carter at your disposal, I know he he's only played one game, but, you know, Frank Bradshaw-Ryan's been in the squad before Harry, Harry Sheridan has been. You had Cormac as a Chukwu who played for Balnehench at the weekend. So to put Harry Sheridan in there, you know, that's a big vote of confidence in him that you think he's ready to play in that game. And to bring him on, I I, I know... Well, no, sorry. Sorry, I thought he came on for Henderson, but... Um, to bring him on with 20 minutes to go, to have the faith in him to come on that early in the game against La Rochelle, against a big La Rochelle pack, you know, it's a decision that's come completely out of left field, but they've put a lot of faith in him this week. 100%, but like it was a big rolling of the dice in a number of the calls. Like we've spoken about Billy Byrne sort of, well, everybody struggles for form, but Billy Barnes as part of that conversation. Like Ulster going into that, going into a European game, not selecting Billy Barnes to start, given everything that we'd seen from Dan's selections, seemed not to be feasible not that long ago. But you have Madigan starting. Cooney was there, but not playing. Um, not even on the bench and I know McDonald didn't get on in the end because mm. Doak went the 80 but you know as you say Carter was there but you had Harry Sheridan who had never played a senior game on the bench and it was a big bold selection and I think it paid off because I think you did see the freshness and I think that's another thing that's going to be really interesting this week to see which of those selections he sticks with and mm. which go the way of the twist. Like, to my gal, and there might not be another option. He might not have another tight head again. <laughs> um, Jeff Tamang Allen might rack up the most minutes for a tight head in the history of rugby. Over a three-game span. Over a three-game span. <laughs> if he only misses yeah. like six minutes or something. Um, no, fair well, play. If, if Tom Uto gets called up to the Six Nations squad, he might continue that run throughout uh, yeah. February and March as well. Yeah. Do you think, despite losing six out of seven games, um, is that right? Yeah, is yeah. That yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And uh, <laughs> so I, lo- I looked at you so decisively because I was, was going to get a good question here. It wasn't like I was. Uh... I was like, it's, do you know what? There's just so many losses at this point. I'm like, are we even on track? Um, but yeah. So and all the pressure and all the flack that's been put on Dan, um, he says, despite it all, he loves his job. When asked about if he would possibly be in the mix to take up the vacant post at Leicester Tigers. Um, and I thought what was interesting, like Johnny, I was reading your piece, um, he's Ulster's longest serving head coach of the pro era. <laughs> yeah. um, and he signed on until 2025. Do, do you think there's any truth in that um, by him going? Or who do, you, who do you think could take up the post? Jinkies. Jink, jinkies my, like my understanding of it is that there is definitely some truth in it in the sense that he has a good relationship with the previous Leicester boss and the previous Leicester boss, Steve Borthwick, is now in charge of England, thinks very highly of him. So he he was definitely mentioned mm-hmm. in relation to the books. Now, we've seen Gregor Townsend, the 
President Scotland boss has also been mentioned um, over the weekend. I believe that he's going to stay. I, you know, I said last week that I think that's what Ulster need. I think they need the stability. Whenever we talk about, uh, you know, longest serving, he's only done four full years, you know, which says an awful lot yeah. about the... Uh, that's a good stat, though. I like that. <laughs> the, uh, he was actually really surprised to find that out when I told him that um, <laughs> at the start of the season. Um, it says an awful lot about the sort of revolving door of Ulster coaches that we've seen. Um, really throughout the pro era, you know. And um, I do think they need that stability. Obviously, they need to get out of this out of this wobble. Um, but whenever, like, people sort of started first questioning, um, Dal McFarlane and I wrote in my column <laughs> that, like, people that wanted him sacked weren't appreciating the reality that he was more likely to go to a bigger job than he was to get sacked. And I think this is proof of that. Like, I'm not saying he's first choice for Leicester. I, I don't know. Well, uh, from what I've heard, Steve Borthwick wrote up a list of candidates that he thought would be good to take over, yeah. and Dan was on that. Now, how, how much Dan actually wants the job, I think, is a little bit less clear. But Are you I, saying that in the sense that whenever he was asked the question, his quotes are about how he loves his job, and it's... A way to answer a yes or no question without a yes or no? Well, no, I've, I've, sorry, I wasn't even referring to his quotes. I, I was just sort of saying, you know, how much of this was Lester approaching him and how much of it was it him signaling to Lester that he was interested, you know, so that that's the bit I don't know. All, all I know is I believe Steve Borthwick sort of singled Dan out along with a couple of other people, Gregor Townsend being one of them, uh, that... That, that's how it came about as opposed to Dan McFarlane basically calling them up and going here I'm free I, I'm, I want to interview for this job oh yeah like I, I don't think it I don't think it was a case of him sourcing or looking for other mm -hmm. jobs I don't believe but um, it's an example of the esteem I suppose that he's held in other places that he's been linked with the English champions yeah. whenever this is at a time when people were talking about him getting sacked here, you know. Well, yeah, I, I think people are looking at it with a real recency bias and they're thinking to themselves, well, why would why would any team want a coach who's just led his side to six defeats and seven and one of them was getting hammered 39-0 and you've lost three games in the last 30 seconds of the game? You know, like, Dan McFarland has done wonders with Ulster. He has taken a team that was at a real low ebb whenever he took over, just about scraping into the Champions Cup, let alone competing for the Champions Cup. And he has turned them into a deep squad that has realistic ambitions to win silverware. So if you look at if you look at Dan McFarland's uh, CV of work over the past seven games, yeah, you're, you're probably not getting too many job offers off the basis of that. But if you look at his CV of work over the past four years, He's a really attractive coach to a lot of teams, you mm -hmm. know, like and Leicester in particular, who are going through a bit of upheaval at the moment where they're not playing their best rugby. Their head coach has just left. They're looking for someone, maybe not necessarily to rebuild like Dan's remit was whenever he joined Ulster, but someone to sort of change things up a little bit and turn things around again. He fits the profile that they need. So I, I completely understand why they would think to themselves, yeah, we want this guy. Speaking of coaches 
Um, the former Ireland centre, Jared Payne, has taken charge of Claremont on an interim basis after the French club sacked head coach John O'Gibbs. Payne, uh, he's taken the reins after ending his 11-year association with Ulster last summer. In an Ulster context, Ulster context, sorry, uh, how, how worried should Ulster be at him taking over Claremont? I think they should be worried in the sense that not even so much that Jared is taking over at Claremont, but just the fact that John O's got sacked and you fear that uh, what in football parlance would be called the new manager bounce because they've been terrible. Yeah. Like I watched their game against uh, Leicester on Friday night. Harry Simmons, what a stepper. <laughs> and in defence, they were just, which ironically enough is Jared's. Area of expertise that he was, coach. <laughs> um, like there were times when Leicester were just running through, um, no attempt at tackles. I started talking, I was like, it's amazing to see how small a deal it has become to win away at Claremont because it used to be the biggest achievement in European rugby, aside from winning the European Cup, was to go to the Stade Marcel Michelin and win. Did you see? Benjamin Kaiser's interview on BT Sport. No, I was watching it in France. So. It was almost sad listening to him talk, and I mean like emotionally sad um, listening to him talk just about how much pride and how much enthusiasm that his side took in keeping that uh, run going at the Marcel Michelin. Like it was a real source of passion for them every time they ran out there to win that game because they had this run going and essentially just you know that that aura that uh, whenever teams came to Claremont they weren't winning it, it was it was almost like you knew you'd lost before you even stepped foot in France let alone got to the stadium and that, that was something that they took so much pride in and now to see them as a team that are a shadow of that you know I don't know how many losses they've had at home this season alone but like the, Claremont were a team that you know built their entire success around the fact that they just could not be beaten at home, and now they look like a team who are fragile and weak and essentially just trying to hold on to their past glories. And it's not what's good for the game of rugby. You know, you talk about things that are good for the game of rugby. A strong Claremont is good for the game of rugby because they have such a, a storied place. In European rugby where, you know, you've got the the yellow ultras as they call themselves, you've got that feared Marcel Michelin. We've been lucky enough to go there a couple of times and the atmosphere in that place is on another level compared to some of the other places we've been to. So it would be good for them to get back to that level and for an Ulster sake you would hope it's not this week, but you know, <laughs> that that team I just have a real soft spot for for Claremont, and especially after listening to uh, to Kaiser talking about them this week. I think as well, like Jonathan, you were saying before the podcast that because he is there, Gerard's there on an interim basis, and Ulster obviously need Claremont to lose, and there's nothing to beat Seal, but he'll have a point to prove. Yeah, I mean it's his first ever game as a head coach, um, which will be a big deal for him. Like the talk in France at the weekend was, um, there was talk of Ledesma the. Um, who obviously played for Claremont for a long time. There was talk of uh, Christophe Urios, who was at uh, Bordeaux for a long time um, as head coach there, maybe um, coming in. So it'll be really interesting to see what happens with Jared going forward, because obviously, you know, that's John O'Gibbs' ticket that he came in on. 
So that's going to be really interesting to watch. From an Ulster perspective, obviously everyone has to hope that it goes terribly on <laughs> first up because if Claremont, well, if Claremont get anything from the Stormers in Cape Town, it's bad news for um, bad news for Ulster because Claremont are on six points. Claremont are on six points, Sailor on five, Ulster on three, London Irish one, Northampton one. Yeah, so, but given how bad Ulster's points difference is, they really need to be finishing above Claremont in terms of points. You don't want to be putting additional pressure on yourself of needing to go and beat Sale by getting four tries and five points. And the other thing as well is obviously Sale can get two points from defeat theoretically so you need to avoid that happening as well we, we, should, we should point out that there is another way else you can get in that's Montpellier losing but they would uh, they're playing London Irish yeah, so, them, so we're not yeah, expecting exactly, yeah. them to, to trip up there so the real one you need to trip up is Claremont it's going to be incredibly flattening to the atmosphere on Saturday if as people are filtering into the ground they realise that Claremont have somehow got something from the Stormers mm-hmm. and that the Ulster game doesn't mean nothing, but as you say, <laughs> is suddenly very unlikely to lead to a knockout place. Mm-hmm. Just keep your phones off before yeah, anyone yeah. lands in. Um, I mean, the, the one thing that I would say on, on Jared taking over is that it's essentially a free hit for him. Yeah. You know, he's not expected to get the job at the end of the season. So, you know, all, all you can do is just essentially say, here's my plan for this team. I'm going to try it for the rest of the season. You've trusted me with the interim job for the rest of the season. Let me do this and you can judge me at the end of the season. It might, it still might not be enough. They could end up winning every game for the rest of the season. They might still decide that they want a more trusted name or, or a bigger name in charge. But at the very least, you know, he, he's got a chance mm-hmm. to put his hat in the ring. Or sorry, to put it, yeah, to put his hat in the ring. So um, all the best to him for the rest of the season. Like I've got, I don't have a bad word to say about him from his time at Ulster. So I'm, I'm hoping he goes well. He's listening there. Good luck, Jared. <laughs> um, moving on to potentially positive signing news for Ulster and also my favourite headline from this week. Uh, Exodus from Exeter goes on as Ewers joins Ulster. Uh, a lot of nice alliteration there. So Dave Ewers is joining Ulster at the end of the season, moving over from Exeter Chiefs, who are obviously in a bit of crisis at the moment. Uh, is it going to change much, Adam, do you think? Are you ex- are you excited about Dave Ewers coming over? Well, he's... he's- Going to be a replacement for Dwayne Vermeulen in the back row. Um, slightly different player. Years would be more of a ball carrier than uh, Vermeulen would be. Vermeulen would be very much a set-piece specialist and sort of doing the nuts and bolts kind of thing, whhereas yours will at least give Ulster a bit of a a bit of oomph in that back row. And I think one of the other things that he'll do is he'll probably play blindside flanker more than number eight or certainly that's what he's played for Exeter now it could be that Ulster see him at number eight that they think he he could be that that player but equally I think the fact that you've seen Ian Henderson shifted to six a lot recently as much as that is also to do with trying to get O'Connor Treadwell and Henderson on the pitch at the same time I also think that maybe is slightly down to the fact that Ulster aren't quite sure who their their blindside flanker is because I do think Marcus Ray is more of a an open side than a blind side but they've obviously put him there because they've also got Nick Timoney who is an open side and Dwayne Vermeulen so I would say more than likely you're going to see years come and play six you're maybe going to see Marcus uh, now 
Marcus Ray has been out of the team recently. Uh, we're not 100% sure why, because I didn't think he was playing all that badly, but he's dropped out. Um, I would have put him in at, at open side and you'd move Timoney to eight. If you're Dave McCann, you're probably uh, you're probably looking at that and thinking this is a good move for me because he might get some extra game time at number eight. And I'd say that's maybe why you've seen him a little bit more this season in that you think he's uh, you think that he's potentially going to be your long term guy there, but certainly, I I I would say it's maybe not quite the high profile signing that a lot of people were were looking for. But we've seen in the past with Ulster, you know, some of the less heralded signings are the ones that actually end up giving you the most. You know, Nick Williams maybe necessarily wasn't the biggest name signing. He was a big signing <laughs> in another way of saying it, but you know. He wasn't an international at the time, but he came in and he gave Ulster exactly what they needed, which was an absolutely devastating ball carrier. That's exactly who I was going to say because Nick Williams is exactly who I was going to compare it to because you can tell a lot, I think, of a, about a signing by the reaction from the fans of the team that the player's coming from. And Exeter fans are seemingly devastated by the fact that he's leaving, much in the same way that Ulster fans were whenever Nick Williams went to Cardiff. So I think there is an element of this is the type of player that they need. I agree with you, Adam. I think it's going to be really interesting to watch the makeup of the back row because the fact that they can move Tim and anywhere across the back row is an interesting element of it. And as you say, Hendy could play six, so you could go six, eight, but Tim and eight, seven, that's probably the way to get your best eight forwards at present into the team, whether it has the balance will remain to be seen, but it gives them a big carrier, which I think they've lacked. And, you know, you talk about high-profile signings and I think the business needs to be viewed as a whole. So, like, I know there was some far-fetched talk about world-class players coming and there was some what seemed to be slightly more realistic talk of bigger names coming. But... If you are to look at things as a whole and say, well, one, they're talking about having lost 700 grand because of the La Rochelle fiasco. So that money has to come from somewhere. And two, will Kitschoff and Yurj have more of an impact on Ulster's season next year than, say, Dwayne Vermeulen and Carter do this year? So in terms of NIQs, it's like you're looking at them as a package because there's X amount to be spent and it's not like Vermeulen leaves and he's being replaced by somebody who's on the same money. Like all of these things have to be viewed in totality. And another thing that I haven't really heard too much talk about as well is the fact of the matter is that Jacob Stockdale will have to be assumed onto Ulster's wage bill next year. So for all the talk about there being money to spend from a few bigger contracts, um, either leaving, retiring, whatever. In terms of paying the wages, like Jacob Stockdale will essentially be a new signing that Ulster have had for seven years. You know, mm. it's an it's an odd thing to happen to end up without a central contract sort of at that age, you know. Um, sorry, to get one and then to not be on one is a strange thing to have to deal with in terms of accounting more than anything else. It'll obviously not have any tangible impact on Ulster's squad but it'll have a tangible effect on the wage bill so 
there's all of these things to consider that I think go into that sort of melting pot to explain why maybe Ulster fans are a little bit uh, underwhelmed by the signing of somebody who is a very good player. Looking to the closer future, Ulster women are going up against Leinster this week at home. Um, and similar to the men, Ulster women will probably be the underdogs in this game, it's fair to say. But one thing we were chatting about, Adam, beforehand was the fact that we think it probably should have been a double header at Ravenhill, but the women are actually going to play at Queen's beforehand. This is something that Neve Jones has written a lot about in her column uh, each week in the Belfast Telegraph, which is that a good way to get eyes on the women's game is to double it up. So, you know, I am started off talking about it for, for Ireland, you know, play a women's Six Nations game ahead of a men's Six Nations game. Now, you can't, you can't do that anymore because the two tournaments don't run at the same time. But whenever you've got an Ulster women's game at half past five mm-hmm. and you've got an Ulster men's game at eight o'clock, why could you not play them back to back? I understand they're are reasons why it could potentially not go ahead. You know, maybe there's concerns about the pitch getting torn up. Maybe there's concerns about security uh, that you can't hire them for long enough for for the two games. But it's surely an idea worth exploring. You know, you have, I I don't know how many tickets exactly have been sold for uh, the Ulster men's game on Saturday, but it's got to be in the region of maybe about 15,000 to 16,000 for that game, maybe even more. Where... Where's the issue with playing the women's game beforehand? You've got enough of a turnaround that, you know, they go back into the changing rooms, leave, men come in, get ready to go, and then have that game. I'd say you get a good portion of that fifteen to 16,000 would come for both games. You know, put it, put it on the same ticket, maybe bump up the price by £5, £10. I, I don't know what they, what they would charge for it. You've got two quality games of rugby being played. In an evening and an afternoon, um, I I don't see why why you can do that, and it's a it's a great chance to boost the profile of, of the women's team. That, in fairness, Ulster have been good at doing this year. You know they've put out the teams each week in the, exactly the same way as the men's team. They've done some profiles and some of the girls who are playing. It's great to see that they're really trying to build the profile. But uh, for me, the best way to do it is by putting the games on in the same place and trying to maximise your output in terms of the number of, pe- number of people who, who could come. It's probably part, like, my, my guess first off would be that the pitch didn't look great in the game on uh, on Saturday. But I think it's part of a wider discussion of of all the changes that we've have been mooted in the women's game and contracts and so on and so forth. There is still an idea of trying to find a calendar that works the best. So I think this is like this has been better, I think. But in terms of finding the right spots in the calendar for these things, I think going head to head with the European Cup only works if, as you said, Adam, the games are together. And I think it is disappointing that we've seen. Um, just in the way that the fixtures fell. You know, we, we Ulster had two home games, but they happened to be on the same day in different places as the senior men's team were playing. There's been talk anyway about perhaps Irish internationals being pulled from this round of fixtures and to play 
or to prepare for the Celtic Cup, which is what is going to come after the Interpros, which will then lead into the Six Nations. And ultimately, it's all about getting the best quality of fixtures for the Six Nations or ahead of the Six Nations. So, you know, we've had the All-Ireland League earlier in the season. That builds into the Interpros, which is theoretically a step up, which will build in to the Celtic Cup, which is theoretically a step up. And then you have the Six Nations, which is the the all-important tournament at the minute. But whenever you talk about um, things like that, I just wonder, is there is there anything that could be done there to make this calendar work better? And maybe even in turn, you know, just sevens as well, you know, like the Ulster game probably would have maybe even attracted more fans if, say, like Parsons was playing for Connacht rather than being with the sevens. I, I don't know. Um so it's just it's a massive it's a massive balancing act in terms of trying to find the right calendar. But I do think that this year's calendar is a lot better than what we've seen um, in the last couple of years coming out of COVID. Hopefully, though, like going forward, if it's a bit more organised now, it'll continue that way next year. But then I was just thinking, like, the sure the pitch couldn't even be played on for La Rochelle. So there's <laughs> obviously <laughs> organisational structures need put in place there uh, well good luck to the Ulster women and good luck to the Ulster men both this weekend you can catch up on all the news reviews and analysis about both teams on belfasttelegraph.co.uk and of course in the paper and we will be back next week to discuss <laughs>